Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Most summers in Hollywood are exactly the same. Beeping cars creep along the 10 freeway, a thick blanket of heat layers Los Angeles, and dozens of blockbuster movies with huge budgets come out in theaters, films that are almost always directed by men. Thankfully, this summer, something different has happened. The highest-grossing movie in theaters last week is not only about a woman superhero, aptly called Wonder Woman, but it was directed by another woman, Patty Jenkins. I'm going to talk to Patty today about why it's so difficult to break into Hollywood as a woman and a number of other problems in the industry, We'll hear about some of the stories from behind the scenes directing this incredible film. She'll tell us how she deals with executives mansplaining things to her, how you approach directing a movie with a $150 million budget, which frankly gives me a panic attack just to think about, and how some of the scenes in Wonder Woman point back to some of the atrocious events we've seen in the news lately. It's going to be a fascinating conversation, and I'm thrilled to welcome Patty Jenkins to the show. So first, congratulations. Um, Thank congratulations you. on your recent success. Have you done anything to celebrate or have you been stuck talking to losers like me for the past few weeks? <laughs> uh, a little bit. It's funny. I, I have had, yes, I've had my little moments of, of, you know, I, I'm in New York city right now and I, and I like my most beloved thing to do is to skate, to speed skate in central park. So I've done that a few times, which has been the greatest celebration, but no, I haven't gone on vacation or anything. I've had great times with friends. That's great. Uh, so, so I have a bit of a meta question to start off with. When you're being interviewed by men and women, do they ask different kinds of questions about the movie? Well, that's interesting. Um, possibly, possibly. Let me think of what. Actually, the, the, the interesting thing is, I feel like women, women and men have both really liked the movie, although women do respond more intensely about and and with emotion sometimes about like the relief and excitement of seeing something that they hadn't seen before which men don't really ask those questions that's a that's a good point yeah that's the main difference is like really talking about it as a release and a revelation is more for women than men well, it's funny because I, I asked a few a few friends if they had any questions I should should ask you for this interview, and uh, and when I emailed uh, my friends who were women, they responded with like a list of of thirty questions. <laughs> so very oh, passionate, excited so questions. Nice. So, 
Yeah, it was it was great. Well, we'll, we'll get to some of them. Yeah. So I just wanted to start off asking something that might seem a little simplistic, but but I find it really fascinating, and I'm sure the listeners would too. Is there a big difference when you approach to, to, to approaching storytelling and directing when you look at kind of the budget and size of something? So, for example, you've done commercials for probably a few hundred thousand dollars, TV pilots for a few million. Um, and then this massive box office for for almost 150 million. Do you approach it differently as a director, as a, as a writer, and so on? Yeah, you you on the one hand not at, on the one hand you're still focusing on like forget all that, forget all the money, don't get distracted. It's about telling the right and pure story. But on the other hand, yes, totally differently. And it's it's funny. I was describing a moment that shifted in my career of going from working with low budget to working with high budget and even taking several people along with me on that transition. And the biggest thing that I noticed was low-budget filmmaking is all about constraints and limits. And so it's the sport of, like, trying to do this film or this work despite the absolute limitations. Like, you're shooting it in one room, and you need to shoot four scenes in that room and have it appear that it's four different locations or whatever it is. Whereas... As the as the budgets for the pilots I was doing was increasing, and the scripts that I was getting were more demanding, and in that case too, I was doing it like Wonder Woman for a studio as well. So you have you know other people to answer to. It changed from being uh, shooting something despite the limitations to absolutely being the person who must aim for the absolute greatness because the money is there to support it. So you go from working of like, what can we do to what, what should we do? And how do I ask for that in time <laughs> that I'm the one making it live up to everything that it could be, which is, which is also uh, uh, its own difficult chore to learn how to do. Yeah, I'm sure. Because particularly for people who have come from low budget work, and I, I had this with a couple of people I was working for, where in the, in the middle, when I was doing, I think it was like a $12 million pilot, and somebody I had worked with on lower budget things was saying, well, you know, it just is what it is. And I had to pull that person aside and say, those days are over. We have $12 million here to shoot this pilot. There's no, it, there's no more, it is what it is. Like, it, it has to be, and or there has to be a really good reason, because they're, they're, they've given us the money for greatness. So we have to aim for exactly what we wanted. And so that, and that's its own that's its own uh, task because it, it means that you're only limited by your own organization and requests and and aim. So with with, the, with this movie in particular, there's some pretty you know there's those big budget movie scenes where you you know blow up the airplane and so on. And this is not giving anything away to people who haven't seen it yet. Um, but how do you how do you even learn how to do that? Do, do you have to do is have you? I mean, I'm, I'm taking you've never blown up an airplane in mid flight. Um, on other films or projects? Is this something that you just have to hire the right people that teach you how to do it as, as a director? What's the first step that you take to do that? Yeah, you know, I think that it's, it's, it's strangely and surprisingly to people, it's not that different than anything else. Throughout my career, and I've been working on film sets since I was 20 years old. So I, you know, I, 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 I have a long history of, of, observing that you're constantly, pretty much every job, you're constantly tackling something that nobody's done before in some sort of way, like just even shoot in this location and and do this objective and figuring that out and calling on the right experts to do it. So when you take that smaller, 
model and you blow it up, it's, it's really the exact same thing. Here's what I want. Here's what I want it to look like. Who can execute this part of it? You know, be it a physical prop that does what you want it to do. And who can execute the other part of it, which is the visual effect after the fact? And what order do we need to do those things in? So it's funny. It's like... Hmm. Versus one layer, which is a camera and what you get on the screen, it's 50, but it's the exact same task, which is, oh, what's it going to take to do what it is that I want? And and then you're also, you know, other people are bringing amazing ideas to the table as well, and you're incorporating the right ones of those. Um, so, yeah, you're learning, you're learning about a million, trillion things, but even each of them are kind of specific to whatever that shot is. You know, how do we make a giant plane that doesn't exist? Um, and have it, you know, drive down a runway of a real Air Force base. It's it's mm-hmm. it's, it's its own thing each time. So w- w- one of the things I, I have uh, two two little kids, and I know you have a kid also. Um, and and, yeah. and there's a scene there's a scene in Wonder Woman that was kind of a, a punch in the gut for me. Um, one of them was in No Man's Land with the the mother and the little little child and then the other was the moment where the the town is gassed and and the thing that that was such a punch in the gut was it kind of reminded me of those the footage of on CNN of in Syria recently uh-huh. and things like that yeah when you're filming these things are you thinking about those current events um there's a lot of you know references to to the Germans and the war and things like that are those things you're thinking about and trying to kind of get a a message across or even just kind of incorporating into the film Sometimes. Yeah. In that case, I definitely was aware, like it was already planned before we've always had these terrible things happening, but the Syria, the gassings that were happening in Syria were stepping up during the course of the movie. And we already had that plot point planned, but it definitely became, it becomes more and more emotional to all of us as you're working on it. And, 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 and it only it, it only it only brings weight to exactly what the point of it is, which is like really mankind, like really this is this this is what you're okay with doing, you know. And so, not only does it become a plot point in the movie for her as our vehicle of observing mankind, but it becomes that same observation for us making the movie. Is we're like, good lord, it's funny. I had these many many. Um, I had these interesting, incredible moments during the pre-production in particular of making this movie where I really cared about her journey being one where you take somebody young and idealistic with a belief system about mankind and you send them through this journey through this, our world and where, what are the, what are the very simple, small visuals you could see that are not abusive, but that will hit home completely was like, wow, I, now I, I'm, I'm touched and I remember and, uh, everything I've ever felt about that sort of topic. And so I kept putting together these visual presentations, both to show Warner Brothers and to show my crew of like, this is the journey and these, this is the way these visuals feel. But when I was putting those visuals together, I would hit these moments where I was like, okay, you know, here's pictures of the war and, you know, or, you know, 1917 England, and here's the tone and here's paintings that will influence it and whatever. And then I would get to the war part and the journey that she goes through uh, seeing the worst of mankind. And I would be Googling, you know, gassed, you know, like, oh, gassing people. Oh, my. And then I would descend like at rapid fire down this rabbit hole. It happened to me a few different times 
where suddenly I was like, I was on the journey of Wonder Woman and I just went super dark and suddenly was like, oh my God, what, how could we, oh, we should kill everybody involved in all nations that had anything to do with it. We should, okay, oh my God. And then I would have to get myself back together again. And I would walk out and say to my assistant, I just am experiencing the one, I just had a Wonder Woman moment where I just went dark and wanted to, you know, wanted to, to wreck the world based on what I saw. And then you have to bring yourself back to sort of saying like, oh, okay, well, that's fine. We're, you know, uh, I, I have to keep up the faith and believe that mankind can change and fight for what we're fighting for. And so anyway, um, so, so it was just an interesting part of that. And, and it brought home, definitely brought home the, um, the true events happening in our world and how they paralleled with, uh, with the movie. What, what you just described is what I feel like every time I open Twitter. Uh, so uh, yeah. <laughs> I completely understand. Yeah. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. So one of the apps on my phone that I've been using a lot lately is called SeatGeek, and it allows me to find the easiest way to buy tickets for sporting events, concerts, Broadway shows, you name it, online. In fact, I'm opening the app right now. I'm going to click on the popular tab and see what's going on in Los Angeles in the next coming weeks. I can buy tickets to the Justin Bieber concert in Pasadena, L.A. Dodgers baseball game. There's some really fun music events that are going on, including Future and Kendrick Lamar, there's sporting events, wrestling, you name it. Um, and the great thing is, if I just click through and purchase the ticket, it actually tells me all these different ways that I can save money and find amazing deals right within the app. They give you this way that you can get the best bang for your buck by grading tickets based on value to help you immediately identify which seats fit your budget, too. Plus, and this is absolutely my favorite part of SeatGeek, every single purchase you make is fully guaranteed. So you can shop for tickets online on SeatGeek knowing that they're going to be actual real tickets and not some fake thing you bought on Craigslist that was printed out on some guy's printer. I've made it my go-to app for finding tickets to anything online, and I think you should too. Best of all, listeners to The Hive are going to get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. All you have to do is download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code HIVE, that's H-I-V-E, and you'll get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Now, I think I'm going to go buy some tickets to see Justin Bieber. So switching gears a little bit, um, uh, I was doing a little, you know, research before um, for a story I wrote for Vanity Fair about the future of Hollywood. And one of the things I came across that I thought was just both staggering and infuriating was that um, women comprise just 4% of all directors in Hollywood. And that hasn't changed in at least a decade. Um, And the female characters on the screen only only a point for 28% of all speaking roles in film. Um, yet women, as you, is evident with your film, um, are coming to the box office more so than, than men. Um, h- how do you change that culture? I mean, this is we're, we're in 2017, and it's still the same issue that's been going on for, for decades. Yeah. I, 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 I wish I knew uh, a simple answer for how to change it. Obviously a lot of obvious things have not worked when it's gone on as long as it has. The The biggest thing that I am focused on is talking about diversity of story starting far earlier than director, because I think that part of the big problem I've experienced in the past many years was that 
the price, I was being offered a lot of things. I was lucky enough to be being offered a lot of things, which is probably unusual, and I'm super grateful for it. But the things that were reaching me were so far down the line with a very specific point of view, which was which I did not relate with, already baked in. Can you explain kind of a little bit how that works as, when you say farther down the line that, that the script is done and so yeah. on? Is that what you're saying? It just means that somebody had already had this idea who was who was, you know, Almost always it was like some guy had had this idea and he got another guy to write it and he got five other guys to then come in and write it. So it's already it's already got other problems, which is that it doesn't have a singular vision, but those visions are entirely made up of a certain kind of guy and not just any guy, just very certain kind of guy. And it's gotten all the way down the line and then there will be some reason, like a female character or something that they'll say, and now we want you to come in. And and I will say, well, then I'm, I'm just essentially like a beard. You don't really, <laughs> there's nothing I can do with this. This is already, it already is what it is. And it's, and it's, and I don't relate with it. And so that was the thing that I kept feeling frustrated with was when they were talking about women directors, I was saying, you need more projects with diversity. Like we need, you need, we need to foster uh, anybody can be a universal character. If a car can be a universal character, and if a turtle can be a universal character, then obviously a woman can be a universal character and people, you know, different people from different nationalities and color and, and background can be a universal character. But we have to, but their stories might be slightly different and you have to um, allow space for that different kind of story. So that's my first answer is like, as long as the box office they've been going after was young men and then the... uh and then the uh, movies that they were designing were designed by young men and men, then it just, it shuts it out by the time you get to director. And so that's been a huge problem. The secondary problem is obviously there's something about leadership and directors that there's a, like there's some sort of romantic notion of like them being, you know, I don't know, something's more familiar about that coming from the point of view of a man. And so I think there's, there's obviously something else going on there too. You know, I've been in meetings in Hollywood and Silicon Valley myself where I've watched male executives, uh, uh, to borrow a, uh, a, a somewhat funny phrase, mansplain things to women uh, yeah. or completely ignore them on a <laughs> yeah. topic. And um, you seem like a kind of a no-nonsense kind of person. What do you do in those situations? Uh, I mansplain right back. <laughs> I, for some reason, I'm totally – I'm completely fascinated with watching those techniques and always have been. And it's interesting. My father passed away when I was a kid, and I almost feel that the benefit of not growing up within that power structure in my teenage years meant that I never, I like never quite got the habit of like behaving differently to your father or I don't know, something. So when I finally was around adult men a ton again as an adult, um, I was always fascinated by watching their little manipulative moves that, that particularly like bankers in, in New York would pull on each other. And I was like, oh, my God, that's so simple and childish and like not at all powerful. It, it, but it, yet it's some technique like, OK, well, it's very, very interesting you would say that. Um, clearly, we haven't really read the <laughs> article, but um, I think you will find I was like, whoa, man what a move, you know, like you just tried to take over the conversation. So I'm 
incredibly sensitive to that kind of behavior. And I try to call it out for what it is immediately. And I don't tolerate it or like it on my sets for sure. And, and, and I will try, I won't try to, no, I don't mansplain back actually, but what I will do is try to identify it as clearly and instantaneously as possible and say, I think that that was sort of a, uh, I'm not sure why you would say that. And that sounds like kind of a manipulative thing to say to imply that I don't know what I'm talking about, but that's, we're not going to do that right now. So let's move forward. So I try to stay unemotional, but also not allow those styles of conversation to hijack anything. So what, what is it that you think, um, you know, uh, allowed you to break through in the way that you have um, that has not worked for other women directors? Well, I really, I would hate to even speculate that it's, you know, that it's not just, I feel lucky, you know, like I, I don't know. I don't know that it's really anything special about me, but, um, but I definitely do think that, um, the one thing that I sometimes think that I wish more people told young women directors, and I have always gone out of my way to tell them is power and leadership is a job and it requires a certain kind of thing, regardless of what gender you are. Yet I think that that kind of behavior is taught from, from men to each other more often than women teach it to each other. And so, cause I, I, I have, I have overheard certain people before sort of saying like, there's that, there's that way of directing, but then I'm a different kind of director. <clears throat> I'm very, you know, like whatever. I'm emotional. And I like to let my feelings flow and do whatever. Well, I'm all those things too. But I also say, well, wait a minute though. Leadership is leadership. And you have to have a confident plan and be, you know, like projecting that confident plan. That's just what leadership is. That's not masculine. Um, and so, mm-hmm. That's the only thing that I ever have observed where I was like, women need to teach other women that if you're going to be the leader, you need to be a leader, which also, by the way, does not at all mean I'm not at all the kind of director who's acting tough and defensive, not at all, but I'm incredibly organized and I know what the plan is and I'm going to stick to the plan. And, and, and I, you know, all of these things, which, and I will let the the crew know that so that they can relax, that there is a plan, that's kind of thing. It's not about behavior of toughness. It's just about like assuming the mantle of of leadership is 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 what it is. So your your last movie before Wonder Woman was Monster, and it was based on the uh, the serial killer Eileen Wernos, um, which I thought was an absolutely unbelievable movie, um, and I've seen it a few times. Um, uh, and she was killed Thank on death you. row. And one of the things I, I read, um, I remember reading a few years back, actually, was that you developed a connection with Eileen prior to her being put to death, and she shared a bunch of uh, letters and things with you. As a director, and this is this applies to Wonder Woman too, I guess, is it hard to separate the the, the real person from the character in the film? I mean, I, I know with um, with Monster, for example, you know, you went through great lengths to ensure that Charlize Theron looked like Eileen and acted like her, how, how do you feel emotional towards these, these actors as if they're the real people at some point? Yeah, you definitely, there's definitely a third thing that happens. Like there's definitely, there's you, there's them. And then there's the, the, the character for sure, you know? And I, I feel like um, when it came to Eileen Warnes in particular, what was interesting was I felt that it, it's in, interestingly, it's not unlike the same kind of sport of, doing this with Wonder Woman where there's 15 different 
15,000 variations of Wonder Woman done by different artists. But I felt like you really have to get to the root of what's the truth of that character, like what's the original core truth of Wonder Woman, and then bring that to life. I felt that same way about Eileen Warnus, where I was like, sure, on any given moment, Eileen might scream at you or become wild or bec- or start crying. Like any of those things are possible. But what's the root of the spirit that runs through everything I've ever learned about Eileen Warnus? And what can I, how can I tell that story and best demonstrate it? And so I think that that was what I wrote. And then that was what I worked on putting on the screen. And then Charlize really did transform into this other person. And it's her and it's her and it's tremendous acting, but it's also, you know, we, we were participating in this third spirit on set, which was Eileen, you know, the core of Eileen, mm. the, the, the genuine core that we believed was Eileen. And yeah, it was, it's, it's funny because I, I just had this with this movie where as I was finishing editing, I got, I got upset because I was like, these are my friends that I'm going to miss Diana and, and Steve, you know, like I've been with them every day. I'm super close with Gal and Chris, but they're not them, you know, like they, they're, they're, there's a third thing at play here too, which is like these characters, which I know and love. And there's a little bit of a mourning process when I leave them behind and say, Oh, I don't get to hang out with those guys every day anymore this is inside the hive with nick bilton i'd like to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors ZipRecruiter. i have a lot of friends in different industries who use ZipRecruiter to find the best candidates for their jobs and they all tell me how great it is as a resource with ZipRecruiter, you can post jobs to 100 plus job websites with just one single click they then have some powerful technology which i don't know how it works it's got all these algorithms and gadgets and whatnots But what it does is it matches the right people to your job, and they do it better than anyone else. There's a reason why people use ZipRecruiter versus all these other job websites that exist online, and there are a lot of them. ZipRecruiter doesn't just depend on candidates finding you, it finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. The really great thing about this website is you don't have to actually juggle emails or calls to your office as you usually do when you're hiring someone. There's this beautiful dashboard where you can rate, manage, and look at all your different candidates in one place. Right now, listeners of The Hive can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free if you go to ZipRecruiter.com Hive. That's ZipRecruiter.com H-I-V-E. You can post free jobs on the website. I can promise you, you'll definitely find an amazing candidate if that's what you're looking for. Can you tell us a story that, that happened on set or something to do with the film that is one of your favorite little moments that you tell at a dinner table? Mm, what would I tell? It's a, it's a tough question, but, but it's, uh, it's always – I always love to ask people these questions. It's like if you and I were sitting around a dinner table and our friend Michael Sugar was there and so on, and, and you said, oh, right. here was this thing that happened. Yeah, it's so funny. It's funny because I almost feel like if it was a 20-day shoot, that would be easier than it would was – 200, you know, was it, one, it wasn't 200, but it was 100 something. Yeah, I, I can't think of a great little story. I mean, there were so many incredible little moments. There was definitely um, the absurdity, like of me, I had bought like a, a climate, we had to shoot in the middle of winter in England and oftentimes at night. So I was like, listen, I have to stand outside that whole time. I'm not messing around. What do they climb Everest in? Like, what's the, what's the suit that they climb Everest in? Get me one. You know, I want it. And so, and the only one that I could get is 
giant and bright red, just this huge bright red down suit. And it's way too big for me. So it's like, so it bunches up. I look like this, the state puffed marshmallow man. Like it bunches up in the middle and like this huge saggy crotch and Chris Pine coined it the red dragon. But it, I think the funniest thing was that I would break out the red dragon on certain days and go running like a giant, like a, just a giant ball of red across towards the actors <laughs> and gal in particular would be standing there in the Wonder Woman costume. <laughs> so, I wish we had a great shot of it, but there were these incredible moments of me standing in a full-blown Everest snowsuit, just trying to direct freezing Gal Gadot in the Wonder Woman costume. And uh, those were the days that she really was proved, proved the truth of her Wonder Woman more than anybody. That's amazing. What's your, uh, what's your dream next project? What's my dream next project? Well, yeah. Uh, I've got a few. I, I have a few. I have a movie that I am passionately in love with that I was trying to make right before this called I Am Superman, coincidentally not based on Superman, um, uh, but about a pit bull named Superman. And so that is a movie that I really do hope that I get to return to. But I also, you know, am in love with Wonder Woman and uh, had such a great time making this film and with this crew of people. So I'm very excited about, you know, potentially doing another Wonder Woman. That's great. I, ho- I hope you get the opportunity. So I have one last question, which is what I ask everyone on the show. And I say to them, yeah. if you could go back in time 20 years and give your younger self a piece of advice, what would it be? Um, relax. I would just tell myself to relax. I feel so sad when I look back on, I've been sort of ambitious and anxious about what I was doing the whole time since I was pretty young. And so I feel like I was, I just, I was, everything that was going on in my life was always being framed by the failure of where I wasn't. And so I look back at my twenties now and I'm like, God, nobody does anything in their twenties. Why did I like, why didn't I just enjoy myself a little more? And I was enjoying myself and having a great time, but I was like so hard on myself for not being a great artist and not doing the work that I want to do. And now I'm so grateful that, that work and success and all of those things kind of tapered out as they did for me or, or built up as they did for me, because only now do I really feel totally capable of taking advantage of them and enjoying them and all of those things. So I wouldn't have wanted success young in retrospect. Um, so hmm. I'm just, I, I think I just wish I could have told people that there's a, told myself that there's a, there's a reason for every step and enjoy the steps. And yet, you know, that life you're living will, will, will add up to something later. That's a, that's a great piece of advice. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a great conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks to my guest, Patty Jenkins. If you've enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work and to my editors at Vanity Fair. And thanks, of course, to our sponsors, SeatGeek and ZipRecruiter. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I'll see you next week. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. 
We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.